Hey friends, Andy Jenkins here with the podcast again. Uh, Thanks for joining me. I've got a really interesting location today. I am outside of Austin, Texas as of the recording of this. And so uh, it's a long story. I will spare you the details and then share it for another time. But Beth and I made a road trip out here and uh, really took this long road, I-20, all the way from Birmingham you know, you leave Birmingham, you go through Tuscaloosa, through Tuscaloosa to Meridian, Meridian to Jackson, Jackson, Vicksburg, Vicksburg. We don't quite get really Vicksburg. Uh, you cross into Louisiana and you've got Monroe and Shreveport. Spent the night there, <clears throat> got back on the road. Tyler, uh, we cut from Tyler to Waco. You could go Tyler to Dallas. When I was in seminary in Waco, it, it was always kind of this toss up right there. Because from Tyler, you can take kind of this diagonal shot down to Waco, but it's all this stop and go. It's shorter, but it's really not any faster than going the long way to Dallas and then directly south on 35 because you can go much faster when you're on the interstate. And when you do all these back roads, I mean, you know, it's 40 miles per hour, then it's 70, and then it's a traffic light, and then it's 30, then 70, and then a traffic light. So we made all of that, uh, took the Tyler out, ended up, got to see the silos, Magnolia. Uh, it, it was interesting because I've, I've recognized those on the pictures before and seen them on people's Insta stories, uh, on TV occasionally. We don't really watch network TV or even cable TV. Now we do stream Netflix and Apple TV and all of that. It's just we like to watch TV at the time when we choose rather than just kind of having that schedule dictated by live TV. And so because of that, don't really catch a lot of HGTV or TLC or whatever uh, the Chip and Joanna Gaines thing is. But those silos are right behind First Baptist Church of Waco. And years ago, when I went to Truett Seminary, that's the name of Baylor University's seminary. It was named after this historic pastor Uh, in Texas from, oh goodness, about a century ago. Uh, He started pastoring, George W. Truett did, First Baptist Church of Dallas. And so that seminary named after this stalwart in the faith. And while they were building the building for the seminary, First Baptist Church, which is just a few blocks from Baylor University, had this entire wing that the seminary used. Uh, my apartment was maybe five blocks from the main campus of Baylor, maybe five blocks from the church, kind of in a different direction, made this little triangle. And just behind First Baptist, those silos. So many times when I would get in my car and ride from the campus there of the seminary, which was on a wing of the church, to downtown, this was back late 90s. And so coffee shops were just now a thing. I'd go downtown, and, and, and by downtown, I, I mean very loosely downtown. It, Waco's a small city and, you know, built around the college. So I would go downtown, which is, you know, a few buildings. I don't think anything peaks over six or eight stories, and there's only one or two of those. Uh, you know, the hotels are the biggest buildings downtown. 
I would go past these silos, or if I went running, I, I might past the silos. And so it really kind of brought back all of these, uh, you know, memories of just remembering, oh goodness, th this is, this has really changed the landscape a lot. Now there's so much traffic down here, uh, so many people coming through. But we ended up, after leaving Magnolia, uh, we ate lunch at a place that I remember eating multiple times, this uh, Mexican restaurant in Ninfas that has red salsa and green salsa made with green tomatoes and cilantro and uh, probably has, uh, you know, my guess is some avocado in there. Uh, really creamy, delicious, known for, uh, I mean, miles around, haven't eaten it in 20 years and it tasted exactly the same and then down to Austin. So I'm recording in Austin. And, and I want to pick up on really the topic I've been discussing for the past few weeks, this idea of future grace, that grace not only saves you in the past, but it plans and purposes this reality for you to walk into as you move forward from the present into the future. Now, in other books, in fact, I'll put a link down in the show notes here for you, in other books, such as the book Purpose, uh, that's a book that I've written about how to find and fulfill the reason for which you are on this planet. We really discuss uh, how grace, supernatural grace, God's grace, it forgives the past and then empowers you to something incredible. In this series, though, I'm actually talking about how that grace empowers you to walk with this hope of healing, to walk with this predisposition to forgive others how to walk with this uncanny confidence that everything, though not beautiful in the moment, somehow works together for your good. That all the stresses, the strains, the traumas, the trials of the past somehow can converge forward. And it's really important that we get it. And, and, and it's not like we're gonna just, oh, I, okay, that's it. Check that one off the box. I mean, it's an ongoing process and you're going to get tooled now because there'll be some pain and trauma in the future. And life is this incredible grand journey, but there are some, oh goodness, there's some awful things that we face along the way. And if we can become better tooled now when we're not facing trials, now when we're not going through tribulations, now when we're not in the stress or strain of a hard season, if we can get tooled now to face those, then when they inevitably come, I mean, Jesus said straight up, in this world, you will have trouble. And, and absolutely, I want to be positive, uplifting. I think <laughs> the, one of those positive, uplifting things I could actually say right here is I am certain and positive that you will face trouble. I'm also positive that with some tools and the right perspective, we can endure those hard things knowing that something better is on every single time the other side. And furthermore, I don't think you'll ever be able to walk out your purpose unless you process and heal some of the pains of the past and have a plan to just keep moving forward, not denying the pain of the future, but have a plan to endure those tough seasons going forward. If we don't, we'll continue living out of the pain rather than living out of the overflow of a heart that's made whole and simultaneously healing all concurrently. Okay, that's 
that's a long intro. It's a bit of a setup. It explains kind of why I am where I am and all of that. Today, I want to talk a little bit about healing the past. That's really where we're landing today. And if if I can help you in any way, there's another link in the show notes that I would like to give you. It is uh, not only the purpose book, which will help you find and fulfill the reason you're here. It'll walk you through three keys to do that. Also, if you look in the show notes, there is a, I've called it this, the best of soul wholeness. Soul Wholeness is a book I wrote. It's about 24, 25 chapters. And I read the audiobook several years ago. Now, it's, it's really long, and it's a robust treatment of all of the things. However, I went through and I, I yanked out really those chapters where I define three of the common soul wounds we all face, whether it's triggers, such as PTSD would be the most extreme version of that, hurt from the past, you continue relieve it in the present, um, guilt and shame, the most extreme version of that is what is called by professionals as moral injury, and then soul ties. A soul tie is when your heart is attached to the wrong thing or it's attached to the right thing in an unhealthy way. And so one chapter on each of those and then a chapter that's kind of the follow-up from each of those that says, okay, that's the wound. Here's how to walk in healing. Here's the second wound. Here's how to walk in healing. Here's the third Here's also how to walk in healing. All that's there for you. I would encourage you to just follow that link and it'll pop up on your uh, your mobile device. It'll pop on your computer. You can download it, take it with you, transfer it somewhere else. Absolutely free. Okay, so let's talk about healing the past. Now, uh, let me give you some background on this. In January of 2019, I wrote the book Emotional Wholeness Checklist. Uh, that is a treatment on feelings and the importance of recognizing them in ourselves. Uh, the premise of that book is this. All of our feelings, uh, both the ones that we can typically consider to be good and those we typically consider to be bad, all of them are important. And so what I say in there is there's not really good feelings and bad feelings. There's just feelings and one of the best things that we can do is learn to recognize those when they occur, to read what they're saying to us about what's happening around us, and then respond in a healthy way. So uh, feelings of fear uh, might tell us something about the situation in which we find ourselves relationally or even physically. Uh, there's a song out in kind of the Christian genre that says fear is a liar. Well, it, it's not. If you're walking towards a fire and you get nervous about sticking your hand towards that flame, fear is telling you the truth. If you walk to the edge of a tall building and fear says, hey, maybe we need to step back a little bit, fear is actually telling you the truth in those instances. If you see an oncoming car or a train and you get fearful and you need to speed through or move over or get out of the way, fear is absolutely communicating to you exactly what you need to know in those moments. Fear isn't a liar. And, and I get what this song is trying to say. It's just usually bumper stickerisms. Uh, they lack a depth that you really need to move through life in a healthy way. And so all of the feelings, uh, the ones that we even think that are bad, uh, anxiety, uh, worry, nervousness, we, we don't want to live from those feelings 
We don't want them to dictate our decisions or drive us forward, but we do want to see what they're saying because they're always communicating something to us about the condition of our soul. Now you think about it like this, physical sensations, though we don't like pain uh, physically, it communicates something to us. So if I walked over and touched a hot stove right now, I'm looking at that here at this, I'm in this fabulous Airbnb that we rented. If I walked over there and touched the hot stove, instantly this sensation of pain would go, you know, I mean, automatically, and I would yank my hand away. If I did not feel that sensation, I might leave my hand there and I might suffer permanent damage. Uh, if when I was running, I did not feel this sensation of, my goodness, man, my knees, you know, after making this big 12, 15 mile loop that occasionally I go on, oh goodness, like, yeah, I need to stretch those out and stay off of them another day or two. Or my heart is pumping really fast. At some point, I got to slow down. If neither one of those physical sensations occurred, I might just permanently damage my legs or I might just run until my heart just really, it redlined and then quit. You see, physical sensations, even painful ones, help us. If you didn't feel cold, so cold that it hurt when you went outside, you might just get frostbite, your hand go numb, and then the limb, it, it could do permanent damage. Well, in a real way, emotional senses, those feelings are to our soul what physical sensations can be to the body. And again, we don't want to be living in such a way that those feelings dictate our every move and our decision, but they can work in a healthy way. We've just got to learn to read them before we react or before we just get in a rut and stay in that feeling. Now, Back when I was writing that book, uh, there was a gentleman, Dr. Benjamin Perkis, uh, has 20 years of clinical psychological experience and uh, is in the field of essential oils. At that time, uh, I was doing some work, uh, really building a business in the Young Living Essential Oils, that company, kind of in that natural health space. And so writing some books, running a membership program and doing some training uh, that we would sell to different people there through a previous business that I was working with. And I reached out to Dr. Perkis because I knew I was writing that book, Emotional Wholeness Checklist, about emotions and about feelings. And I knew part of the audience that I was writing that to was in that essential oil space. And I knew that he had professional expertise really straddling both of those areas. And so I talked with him several times. I invited him on a podcast that I hosted during that season. I interviewed him on a Zoom call that we invited people to listen in and watch extraordinarily insightful, he told me this. Uh, he said, I, I love my craft. I never envisioned myself leaving it. This is the psychological one. I always thought I'd write a book about my practice someday. I just wasn't sure how. And he eventually wrote this book about what he calls the aroma freedom technique, where in it, he really dissects how you can heal those memories. Going way back, now, 
I've written about this in that book, Soul Wholeness. And so you can grab the audio and you can go to a much different, deeper uh, dive through all of that. But it's, so I'm going to skip a lot of the conversation. But I want to land on some of the points that he said were super important and relevant to where you and I are right now with this healing the past. He said this, there are three, he just called them facts about human nature. He outlines these in his book. First fact, we're designed to explore and grow. This happens from the day we're born. Infants, they begin crawling. They poke forks into areas they shouldn't. Uh, This is why if you have babies, they crawl under the cabinet. They open the door. They start slinging things out. They're just exploring. This is why they walk. And then they look at you. They make sure you're watching. They're safe. Just as soon as they start scooting around. And then they start going to the next room. And they still want to make sure you're there. But they are trying to explore and grow. They are pushing the limits, finding what's permissible, finding what's possible, seeing what's out there. Now, here's the catch. It leads us to the second point. Inevitably, when you explore and grow, you bump into pain points. You bump into problem areas that hurt you. And uh, when you do that, you're mind creates these rules internally to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure. To avoid pain and avoid pain at all costs, to pursue pleasure, to enjoy the things and keep re-enjoying the things that in some sense benefit you. Um, So just kind of back up. You're exploring, you're growing, you're doing this experimentation as you're studying the world is you're just learning what's possible. Some of those experiments work out great. Oh, I'm going to repeat that. Some of those experiments, they don't work out so great. Uh, And so you lose some of your innocence as you venture into new territory. Then you start playing it safe. I remember giving him this example. I said, when my little kids, uh, you know, I've got, goodness, Beth and I have 10 kids So when my biological kids were little, every single one of them, all seven of them to the kid, they would run up to me. They loved it when I would toss them in the air. Every single one, they would say, chunk me. That's what we called it, chunk me. And I I would throw them up, I would catch them. They would laugh, do it again. Throw them up, catch them, do it again. Throw them up, catch them, do it again. I would literally do this so many times, I would eventually, it felt like a workout. I'd just have to take a break. Okay, let me rest a second. And then I'd start chunking (laughs) once again. Uh, Now, as I'm explaining this to Dr. Perkis, he asked me, he said, did you ever drop one of them? The answer, never. I never even came close to dropping them, but they all began getting nervous about being thrown. Some of them even termed it this, high in the sky. Chunk me high in the sky. They all got nervous right around the age of three or four. It's, it's like they used to beg me to do it, and then almost overnight, they grew terrified of it. I mean, it was fantastically fun, and then it was a certain indefinite fear instantly, even though, again, none of them ever came close to even getting dropped. So Dr. Perkis, he said this, well, think about it maybe from their perspective. 
By that time, they'd all learned to walk. They'd fallen. They'd begun to ride bikes, and they'd taken a few spills. So the conclusion that I repeated to him was they knew they should be afraid of heights. Until that point, they had no idea. And it makes sense because I'm tossing them. You know, if I'm, I'm not quite six feet, 5'10". By the time I extend my arms up vertically, they're beyond the six feet. I'm tossing them two or three feet in the air. They're going up eight or nine feet. So you think about like this is almost basketball goal height. Now you start seeing why they're afraid because from the vantage point up there, you know this if you've ever climbed a ladder just to go up to change a light bulb, oh goodness, the vantage point of up there from down here, it, it seems so much farther of a distance when you're looking from the ceiling to the floor than from the floor to the ceiling, even though it's the same distance. There is somehow this calibrator in your head that factors in the height, whether you're aware of it or not. Okay, so now that you understand that, apply it to other areas of your life. Uh, you might have learned not to sing in public because at some point somebody made fun of your voice. Uh, I, I did that. You might have stopped crying or showing visible emotion because you did it one day and somebody belittled your feelings. Uh, you might get stage fright in other areas where when you were a kid, you just kind of dance in the room and just become the center of attention. But at some point, somebody pointed out what was wrong with that in a way that might have made you feel less than. So if you're like me, when you start hearing how this works, I've got a list that's probably pages long of things I continue not doing today or I have to talk myself into them because of past experiences. Now, again, this doesn't have to be big tra traumatic things. This is just somehow in the past, you experimented, you put yourself out there. It might've gone fine, might've gone fine, might've gone fine, might've gone fine, fine, fine. And then all of a sudden, oh, pain. And your brain creates this internal rule to keep you from pain. And that becomes your default mode of operating. It's almost like we're on autopilot and in fact, we are because Dr. Perkis said this. He said, these rules, they almost, uh, and, and in fact, he, I think he did say they, they do. They, they become scripted means of operating that are unconscious. So you just do it. You, you might not know why you do it, but you do it. You might not know why you walk into the room and you're quiet first before you greet everyone and you want to make sure that they acknowledge you, but you just do it. You might not know why you're anxious about certain things, but you are. You, you just do it. You, you might not know all of this, but, but you do it. Now, as he described this, I remember the first time years ago, I was thinking back to my conversation with some veterans. At that time, uh, Bob Waldrop from Crosswinds Foundation for Faith and Culture. This was a, the season when I first began working with him and then ultimately, you know, now uh, work on staff there. I was talking with veterans and they would talk about 
cars backfiring and automatically kind of taking cover. And when fireworks go off, automatically feeling this anxious way. Uh, I would think about people that I talked with who had people living with them that yelled and screamed or others relationally where they were frozen out. When you know, if the person wasn't pleased with you, they would emotionally or relationally punish you for three or four days until they thought you would serve the time for whatever crime, often unknown crime that you did to them. And then they would kind of let you back in their relational graces. I thought all about those. And they're all based on rules that were created. So in the, in the veteran mind, you're under mortar fire. There is a rule that is instantly, okay, be on high alert, take cover. Well, unless you get back into this area of the world and there's not regular mortar fire, um, you just kind of realize, uh, well, without, well, well, it's unconscious. So without realizing what's going on unconsciously and kind of talking yourself back through it, you, you may still take that cover. Uh, when somebody in, you're in relationship with now and you disagree about something or there's conflict, if you lived with somebody who yelled or screamed at you before, you might not talk about the conflict because you're avoiding a knockdown drag out that's going to happen, even though there's no evidence from the new person that may occur. Uh, if you've done something wrong, an accident, whatever, you forgot something, you know, you, you, uh, you know, forgot to pick up something or run an errand or whatever. And you did that before with someone that would freeze you out for days at a time. You might be timid about just owning that fault today relationally. And you might not know why, but when you kind of look back, there's always some kind of precipitating event, some exploration, some experimentation you did in the past. Ooh, you bumped into some pain and your brain created these internal rules to run the play. Don't do that again. Ah, you see? I mean, even to this day, I'll give you an example. I've got this internal rule to kind of do a gut check when I see dogs. I'll be out running on the trails and, you know, if you're a dog person, I, I get it. I understand. I, I, I want to be. I'm just not. I've talked about getting a dog. I've just not done it because we go out of town and I'm like, oh, what would I do with the dog? So I'm running a trail and, you know, a big dog runs up to me and owners are always like, oh, you know, don't bind him. He won't do anything to you. He'll just lick you to death. And I'm sitting there thinking it's still inappropriate for your oversized dog to walk up to a complete stranger and lick him. I, I don't want to be licked by your dog. It's inappropriate. And I traced, well, where'd that come from? Well, it's because I don't like big dogs because back when I was younger, I was over at a friend's house and he had this dog named Snoopy, which was a big greyhound looking mutt type thing. And I remember this friend's dad was into airplanes. He had a cockpit of a plane, just not the whole cockpit, just the windshield that was Snoopy's doghouse. And I walked outside and went around to see Snoopy up until this point, I'd been fine with Snoopy. Now, now get it. Like, I'm four or five years old. Snoopy's a greyhound, so <laughs> Snoopy is basically the size of me. I walk around, and he was sleeping, and I scared him, and he snapped and barked. Now, he, he didn't bite me, but oh my goodness, the snap. It terrified me. 
And from that moment on, uh, which I didn't really even think about until I was having this conversation with Dr. Perkis, I thought, man, that's the moment when I created this internal rule to avoid dogs. I, I, was, I was running one day. Over near my old house downtown, I had all these loops that I would run. I had great running uh, streets and just all these little paths that I would go. And I remember coming down this one back street. It was about a mile from my house. It always kind of bring me to back down. There was always this little obnoxious dog. And he would run out to the edge of the driveway where there was the sidewalk. And he would just bark ferociously. You know, and he, but, but he would always run the line of the sidewalk. Like for the whole, you know, 50 or 60 yards, it was a really big yard, run the 50 or 60 yards, just kind of running sideways, barking at me, barking at me, barking at me, barking at me. And I remember the first time he did it, there were these little flags that were there by the sidewalk. And what had happened is somebody had moved into the house. They had moved there, put their dog, let the dog run outside. Of course, they don't want the dog running into the road or chasing joggers like me down the street. And then eventually a jogger like me gets so frustrated, they just kick the dog. I don't think I would kick a dog. But if the dog was attached to my ankle, like I'd probably you know, do something. So they, they hired out this invisible fence company. And so the invisible fence company puts a shock collar on the dog. When the dog gets to the edge of wherever the boundary is going to be, which in this case was right inside the sidewalk, the dog would get shocked. And so the dog would, let's just do our rule, run out, do its thing, experimenting, exploring like the toddler, whatever, like us, even in adulthood, get to the edge, shock, find out, oh, all exploration isn't good. Some exploration causes pain. I'm going to make a hidden rule. Never do that again. Avoid pain in the future. So I'm just going to stay just inside those red flags so that I never get shocked again. So I remember explaining this to Dr. Perkis. And he tells me, he says, well, you know how those fences work? I'm like, yeah, like if the dog ever goes over that sidewalk, the dog gets shocked. <laughs> and he said, no, that only occurs while the dog's being trained. Eventually, they just leave a collar on the dog and they remove those uh, shocking devices. They leave a few flags out there and the dog's not going to get shocked. That dog could run right through and get you, but the dog no longer does because there's this hidden rule in the dog's head unconsciously that says avoid pain in the future. And here's what I'm saying. Somehow, if we don't deal with the past, we can't step into all the bounty that grace has for us in the future because there's something there, a hidden rule that keeps us from doing the things from playing it safe that would require us to break through in order to live our purpose. Now, right at this point, we started talking about these rules. There's two kinds of rules. First kind of rule is this. It's functional rules. Functional rules are your friends. They actually help you. Functional rules serve you. Functional rules are rules that do things like we talked about earlier, keeping us from touching a hot stove or 
from walking down a dark alley at night or swimming in the ocean alone or walking into oncoming traffic or driving the wrong way down a one-way. Those are helpful rules, rules that caution you. Take an Uber if you're tired or if you are out drinking. It is a functional rule. It serves you. On the other hand, dysfunctional rules are foes. They're not friends. They're foes. And rather than helping you, they hinder you. They keep you and me from making progress in harmful ways. They're often based on perceptions of reality. They're consistent with past experience. Think back to mortar fire and rocket grenades versus fireworks now. Think back to unhealthy relationships where people are yelling or screaming or freezing you out versus safe relationships. Now, think back to when you're a kid and your daddy is throwing you up in the air and you know he's going to catch you. In fact, he would fall and let you fall on top of him and break any kind of damage that would occur. Yet, you've fallen off the bike and you've slipped and tripped while you're walking around and you've probably taken a few spills on the stairs at that point. You see, The problem here becomes our brains don't distinguish between which rules are functional and which ones are dysfunctional. They simply create rules, follow them indiscriminately, and then you and I are kind of trapped in the whole tango. You see? So we obey the rules, whether or not they're functional, um, which means, okay, there's there's the third reality of human nature. Okay, number, number one, let's just put it together. Three facts about human nature is we're designed to explore and grow. Uh, but number two is some of this pain points that we bump into causes us to create these rules. Number three, unless we evaluate the rules, we'll continue living out of those rules. Uh, my dad summarized this really well. Uh, a couple years ago when I was writing a different book. I made a quick day trip to Nashville for a project that we were doing with Crosswinds. On the way back to Birmingham, we literally went up there for the day, filmed some stuff, and drove back. Uh, Huntsville is about halfway back to Birmingham. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to stop and have dinner with my parents and just see how they're doing. And so we're eating Red Robin, bottomless fries. I am. My dad is eating endless salad. And we're just talking about what I'm discussing here with you and what I'm writing at the time. He just says, hey, what are you writing about? You always got a project going somehow. And so I explained all of this to him. And he said, well, you know, you see this happening physically all around us. He says, for instance, have you seen the NBA lately, like the finals? I said, no, I I really haven't had time. I've not watched anything. Now, at at that time, that season, Steph Curry and the uh, his team, Golden State Warriors, they 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 were you know blowing through, winning. I think now they've won what four championships. And he said he's a great example of what you're writing about, except it's not this emotional or soul or mental memory; it's muscle memory. So here's how it works. He practices his three-pointers over and over until they're almost automatic. And, and by almost, I mean 99.99999% automatic. 
when he releases the ball, it's almost a given that it's going to go into the hoop. It doesn't matter how many defenders jump on him, how many people get into his face, how bad his balance is at the moment, or even if he gets bumped while he's going up. At some point, muscle memory kicks in and he shoots the ball. Uh, that's why he can shoot it and look away, and he's certain that it's going in. It's almost like he feels it as soon as – this is why he gets paid big money. Uh, Dad made the observation, professional golfers too, that this is why they get paid big money. Uh, a lot of the guys on the PGA circuit, and, and now you could even say in the last year, live golf, they hit the same drives over and over. They repeat them ad nauseum. But when the crowd is there – and the stakes are high, uh, they putt the golf ball or they drive the golf ball exactly where they want it to go. Muscle memory. It's a real deal. Now think about it. Uh, muscle memory is not the only real default thing you you have, you, which, which you do have. You just reach into your pocket and you know exactly which button on the keys, even without looking at it, unlocks the car, which one locks the car. You swipe through your phone and type things with muscle memory. You type on your computer with muscle memory. You navigated to this podcast, probably on the device you're listening to, with muscle memory. It is default. And your brain doesn't discriminate. Well, is this a good muscle memory or is this a bad muscle memory? It's just doing it. Now, so is emotional, mental, and soul memory. We live forward based on what's happened in the past even if the present is nothing like the past. So think about what would happen if a basketball player went in there, practiced the wrong shot for, let's say, a few thousand reps. Now, see, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice just makes more of whatever you practice. Practicing the wrong things creates the wrong muscle memory. Believing or even feeling or living out the wrong thing, even if it emotionally and mentally served you at some point in the past and was the right response in that time to serve you. If it doesn't serve you now, it may be the wrong default response. You see, if you follow hidden rules for too long a duration, you might need to release them. You might need to intentionally rewrite them. But <laughs> here's the trick. They're hidden, so that requires really some self-reflection. requires some self-awareness to plot through and think, oh, goodness, why do I do the things that I do? And, and sometimes you can just kind of default find these things. Uh, for instance, your goal might be, oh, I, I, wanna, I, I really crave a thriving marriage, but you realize you've faced some tough conversations to get there. You desire to grow a large, prosperous business, but you gotta put yourself out there too and lead others in order to do that. You might imagine going back to school, but you need to schedule some things and talk to some people in order to make that a possibility. You want to lose weight, to get healthy, to get back in shape, but that requires getting on the scale, making an eating plan, sticking to it, realizing, oh, you know, I could potentially fail or this could take longer than imagined. You, you get the idea. There are probably a lot of important things that you want relationally, physically, emotionally, but they're on the other side of 
let's just use the little dog analogy, an invisible fence that you're afraid might shock you. However, the truth is many of the hopes and dreams that you and I have, they stand in contrast to what's safe. And I'm not just talking about succeeding in business or uh, pushing forward in a career. I'm talking about the most important things in life, living out your purpose and your call and connection with the people that matter the most to you. You got to do it in such a way that you're able to realize the rules that you're following, to label them, is this functional or dysfunctional? Is it a friend or is it a foe? Does it help or does it hinder? And the truth is it may have helped you at some point in the past, but it no longer serves you. And if that is the case, just take inventory, no shame, and start plotting a new way forward. And the best way for you to have a new rule is to just consciously implant it there and really intentionally think through what you do, why you do it, and allow your mind to renew. I think there's this verse in that, Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by this intentional crafting and recrafting of what you allow in that space. Do you see it? My prayer for you is that the Lord would bless you, he'd keep you, be gracious to you, shine his intense favor upon you, and may at this point, may may you awaken again to the opportunity to explore, to grow. And as you do, may you bump into and consciously see the rules that you follow to evaluate them, to categorize. Hey, these are helpful, they serve me. They're functional. Hey, these are foes. Those hinder me. Those are actually harmful to my forward progress. May you categorize them knowing that James tells us if we lack wisdom, that you may ask your heavenly father who will give it to you without finding fault. Grace and peace. I'll see you in the next episode.